have a hard time being friends with people that don't like wine. And so that's not I, true. It is true, but I don't. I, but it doesn't matter what kind of wine you like to drink, as long as you like to drink wine, great. That's that's fine. So Andy likes to hang out with a degenerate crowd, so you know he chooses his friend based on their love of alcohol. Oh dear. Okay, this is turning into a counseling session. I'm Delia Cologne, and this is the Zest Citrus. Seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, meet a pair of master sommeliers whose love for wine led them to a love for each other. Thank you for eating up the latest episode of The Zest. WUSF Public Media also offers a delicious podcast focused on arts and culture in the Sunshine State. The Arts Access Florida podcast highlights arts and cultural organizations right here in Florida. Learn more about these unique institutions, how you can be a part of upcoming events, and so much more. For a culturally enriching experience, subscribe to the Arts Access Florida podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or visit artsaccessflorida.org. That's arts, A-X-I-S-F-L dot org. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Community Foundation Tampa Bay. Master Sommelier is the highest distinction a wine professional can have. Today, we'll meet husband and wife Master Sommeliers, Andy McNamara and Emily Pickrell. Emily works in marketing for Jackson Family Wines, and Andy is president and partner of Ace Wine and Spirits, which is a beverage distributor. I met up with the pair at Crew Cellars Wine Bar in Tampa's Palmasia neighborhood. Just in time for Earth Day on April 22nd, they discussed how climate change is affecting wine trends. They also shared advice for aspiring sommeliers and their favorite Florida restaurants for a glass of vino. But first, I had to ask, just how rare is it for two master psalms to say, I do? We're the third master sommelier couple in the world. What? Yeah. I mean, there are not too many master sommeliers in the world. How many are in the U.S. now? 160? Something like that. And there's about 25 women. So my dating pool is definitely larger than Andy's. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, I say that jokingly. There aren't too many of us to begin with. So um, yeah, there are definitely not too many couples. Yeah, I'm talking to unicorns. So (laughs) now what came first, the relationship or the wine? Oh, definitely the wine. I've been in the wine industry my entire career since I graduated college. So this is my 20th year in the wine industry. So we've been married for two and a half. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, now I got to get your business. How did you two meet? (laughs) Well, through the wine business we met. Yes. And uh, we're friends for a long time and... Um, then it, as relationships do, evolved into more than friends. Yeah. I love that. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about the relationship between wine and relationships, but I understand that you also have a lot to say about sort of the changing landscape of wine in America, and I'm really curious to talk to you about that. So I'm curious, how is climate change impacting how and where the wines are grown? This is great for you. Sure. I mean, it's it's on top of mind for everyone. It just speaking to California in particular, it's climate change bringing about disasters like wildfires that have a huge impact on uh, production and wine quality. And it's something that everybody's thinking about because 
grapes have a certain ripening season. And depending on what type of grapes you're growing, like for example, Chardonnay is harvested earlier than Cabernet Sauvignon. And you take a look at when wildfires tend to break out in California, um, it's in the middle of the ripening season for Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's an issue. So people are starting to take a look at um, not just where grapes are planted, but the type of grape varieties that are planted in certain locations and their ripening patterns as somewhat of uh, risk, you know, mitigating factors in terms of future climate change. Yeah. And there are ways that you can manipulate the vines to a degree to, to ripen slightly earlier or slight, slightly later. But more from a global perspective, you're looking at people going to regions that they hadn't necessarily gone to before, like southern England becoming very popular for sparkling wine, uh, where it's getting a little warmer there. And there are other spots where it's getting a lot wetter and we end up with a lot more frost and hail. And so we've got those problems as well. And so everyone's very conscious of, of, of that. Uh, that coupled with the, you know, on the sustainability side of things where everybody's very conscious to be about, uh, you know, how are we harvesting our grapes? How are we managing our vineyards? What are we doing in the vineyards to be both sustainable, to be safe to wildlife, to ensure that these vineyards are producing for, for centuries to come? Wow. I saw a 60 Minutes piece not too long ago about, you know, generation after generation of, you know, winemakers. And now all of a sudden it, it just all comes to a halt because of climate change. I don't think it's coming to a halt. I think there's some very traditional regions throughout the world of wine that are trying to preserve their legacy and heritage and trying to do things like sustainable farming and climate mitigation, incorporating those efforts as part of their winemaking landscape. But I also think, as Andy mentioned, there are emerging regions like Southern England that have traditionally not been known for wine in general. And I think, you know, a decade from now, that'll be a very common region for making high quality sparkling wines. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the whole industry is looking, we're looking at things differently because uh, yields are very different year to year. Uh, the amount of wine you get is different in, in every single vintage and it, it can be a struggle and that with pricing and we talk about the supply chain and all of that, it's uh, to me, it's worse than what they tell us on the news. So it's, uh, it's even more complicated and it's, you know, waiting for wines to be bottled because there's no glass and just trying to, trying to make, trying to, do the best that we can. At the end of the day, it's farming. And I think there's a view sometimes that it's a little more romantic than that, but it's not, it's farming. And when you start really looking at that and people getting their hands dirty in the soil, that's that's what wine is really all about. And, and that's, I think you're seeing people, you know, it's not as glamorous as, as it might be portrayed. Oh, so, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. It really isn't. Okay. What's, what's something that's like not glamorous about it? You know, those memes that are, you know, what my friends think I do, what I actually do. So what would that be for you? Uh, for me, it's I mean, it truly is farming. Uh, you go and, and you see a, a winemaker and their hands are stained purple because they're constantly picking things out of berries. They're constantly moving, moving things. It's it is a dirty it's a dirty process. You just get filthy. And that's <laughs> the truth. I look at it more the farming side. You've got like and anytime you're growing anything, you've got bugs and pests and hot sun or cold weather. And you're just out there battling the elements. And um, 
dealing with mother nature day in and day out from the winemaking perspective, as Andy mentioned, those purple hands, you know, really it's a hands-on process, but it's a lot of showing up in cold, frosty mornings and putting on your rubber boots and hosing out barrels. I mean, it's just a lot of lugging around equipment and driving the forklift around the winery. It's not necessarily as Andy says, romantic as, you know, a couple bringing in a basket of grapes and foot stomping them in the uh, winery. Yeah, that's more done for show than in most plots than anything else. <laughs> so, so it looks good, but it's, yeah, that's not the realistic part of it. Okay, so you talked about how British wines are sort of on the rise. What are some other trends that we will be seeing in the future? So I, in terms of categorical trends, I already we're seeing a rise in premiumization in our industry, which means that customers are buying more expensive wines. And I think that that speaks to uh, people want to know, you take a look at food, people want to know where their food is sourced from, how it's grown. People are making deliberate choices to spend more on things that are farmed sustainably or farmed organically. And I see that translating into wine where Uh, The price points that are declining uh, in consumption across America are the sub $10 price points. So the $7.99, the $6.99, those categories are down. Meanwhile, $13.99, $14.99 price points, those categories are growing. And I think it's because with the more expensive wines, you get more of a sense of place, you get better quality production, you get more artisanal production oftentimes. And I think consumers are recognizing that both in terms of the quality and the flavor of what's going in those bottles, but also having better recognition of wanting to put something in your body that has been farmed with intention and with integrity. Yeah, for sure. It's more expensive to farm that way. It's more expensive to make wine that way. And that does get passed along. Uh, To me, I see it a little bit differently. I see uh, in the lower price tiers uh, for places that uh, are a little bit more on edge. They're willing to, you know, they have clientele that are willing to go outside the box and explore just great bridles they might never have heard of or places they might never have heard of and be willing to spend 10 or $11 on a glass of it. But to Emily's point, once you start getting up in price, people want traditional varietals from traditional places made in traditional styles, being sustainable, being organic, all of that is now just implied. If, if you're a winery in those price points, you need to be doing those types of things or the public just doesn't seem to to latch on as well. What do you mean when you say places that are on the edge? So uh, restaurants that are willing to pour things that, uh, you know, kind of baffle the the guests, that they might never have had a ferment from Hungary, uh, or they might never have had a Portuguese red wine, and and willing to pour those types of things because it, A, goes well with the food, or B, it's just something that's a little bit different and at a good price point. Okay. Now this trend of wanting like a little bit more expensive wine, I went grocery shopping this morning before I came here to meet you and, and I buy mostly organic produce. Now I'm almost 40, so I'm an elder millennial. So do you think this trend that you're talking about is a generational thing or do you think like just the whole movement is sort of sweeping the nation? I, so to me, this is the first generation, the, the the 45 and younger, the first generation where their parents were often seen drinking wine instead of whiskey or instead of beer. There was a lot more wine consumption happening. And so as we've grown up, wine was just something that we started to have. And now that generation is coming you know, from 25, 30 and so they're they're more open to wine. There's nothing that's that's particularly scary about it. So they're a lot more willing to just try something brand new and try something different. It's not just a 
factor of sustainability, as Andy was saying, sustainable farming is becoming more and more important. But oftentimes you don't buy a bottle of wine knowing whether or not it's been sustainably farmed or not. I think it's more that people are starting to recognize that by spending, I'll call it up a price point or or just putting a few more dollars, you get a notable increase in the quality of the product. And I think that across all age groups, that is being recognized. It's not just a millennial thing. So millennials are a really important category of wine consumers because they represent a large category of wine consumers. But in terms of dollars, Gen X and baby boomers are just as important when you talk about wine purchases at that 10 to $12 and up price point. You said there's not really a way to look at a bottle of wine and know if it was produced sustainably. How would we know if it was produced sustainably? Is there an app for that? You can, you can definitely go on an individual winery's website and try to do that type of research. There are third-party organizations that do certify for sustainability and organics. And so if a producer were to choose to list that third-party certification on their label, you could certainly find it. But depending on where those grapes are grown, the certifications are different. So in Oregon, the sustainable certification body is called LIVE, which stands for Low Impact Viticulture and Enology. In California, California has its own called Certified Sustainable Winery. So it's different depending on the region. There's no one universal umbrella certification body. And there are tons of wineries out there that practice sustainable viticulture or organic viticulture and don't bother to get certified because to them it's about what's in the ground and what's in the bottle. They don't need it as a marketing thing. So I just talked to someone about sustainable seafood and she said something similar, like it's complicated. That's the short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now let's talk about the pandemic. Everyone's least favorite topic besides supply chain issues. How has the pandemic affected what you do? The wine industry in, you know, the height of the pandemic and hardcore lockdown saw an incredible boom and retail wine purchases. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) And a drastic decline in on-premise or restaurant wine purchases. So that's just obvious and makes common sense. I think uh, there was a little bit of a channel shuffle in, in terms of wines that maybe were traditionally poured by the glass or only featured in restaurants becoming more present in retail. But now as we emerge out of the pandemic, Restaurants across America, for the most part, are back open and busy and back at capacity. And I do think that we're seeing a decline in retail sales versus last year and the year before, but at the same time, an increase in on-premise sales. So it's all kind of balanced out, but we saw this pendulum swing very far in one direction and now it's settling back. It is settling back. I still think it's above where we were before this all started. I think People's way of coping in the beginning was, well, well, let's have a party for a week or two. And then jobs started to get affected and then people's income became affected. And then, you know, some people went back to work. Some people didn't. Some people changed careers. Some people changed a lot of different things. Uh, For me, the pandemic allowed me to get my company going. And people are drinking, people are drinking more expensive wines, they're drinking better wines. I think they're paying more attention to what it is that they're drinking. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing these increases in price points is is that people are looking more for the experience now than I think they were. I think before it was, let me grab a bottle of wine. And now it's, what does this bottle of wine do? That's interesting. So would people have different preferences if they're sitting on the couch in their sweatpants drinking wine versus if they're having a girl's night or a guy's night out? 
for us, it's kind of odd because we don't necessarily pick our wines based on what we're eating or what we're doing. We just pick our wine based on what we feel like drinking that day. And it could be a $10 bottle of wine. It could be a $100 bottle of wine. It just depends on the day. I do think, though, in answer to the question, if taking a look at us, if we're just sitting around the house watching Netflix on a Tuesday night, we're not going to open up the same quality of bottle as if we're hosting people over for dinner. Like, I definitely think that we open up more special wines when we're sharing them with others than when we're just drinking them ourselves. Fair point. Now, do you have similar preferences? Definitely. I mean, I basically, I say we drink it all because we do and we like wine in general and it's fun to try new things. And I always like bring it back to food because people can relate to food, but your favorite cookie is a chocolate chip cookie. My favorite grape varietal is Cabernet Sauvignon. It doesn't mean that every now and again, I don't walk into a store and want a snickerdoodle or a peanut butter cookie or some interesting cookie I've never tried before. And I think wine's the same way. You have your favorites, but you get sick of your favorites. And so, you know, incorporating other wines into the mix makes it more dynamic and more exciting. We always get asked, you know, what's your favorite wine? And my answer is, is the one that's in front of me. (laughs) Of course. It's, we do collect a little bit of wine and it does really reflect our tastes. Yeah, we tend to, we differ slightly on some things, but for the most part, we're, we're pretty aligned. Okay. What's a bottle you have at home that you're waiting for a special occasion to uncork? We like to collect and age a lot of uh, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. And so I think speaking to something that we have in our collection, it's more about waiting for the wine to develop and bottle for a few years, because that's part of the fun of collecting wine and storing it is seeing how it evolves as it ages. So in terms of a particular bottle that you're excited to drink... Uh, all of them. There's a reason we have them. And it's, I, I don't know, we, we tend to build, we tend to build the special occasion around the bottle of wine. And yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pull wine out for Thanksgiving. We'll pull wine out for birthdays and, and things like that and holidays. Uh, but it's more likely if we're going to cook a, a nicer dinner, we'll have a better bottle of wine with it. And it's to her point, we, we like to collect wine. We like, we like older wine in general, uh, but wines, you know, not all wine will age. Uh, and so I like to say we keep a lot of wine in our house that is dr- that we can drink while we're waiting for other stuff to get ready. Mm, okay. What's the oldest bottle of wine in your house? Ooh. In our, in our cellar? Because we live in Florida, so we keep our wine in temperature-controlled storage off-site that has oh, generator backup. Okay, where where is it? I'm not coming, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's other wine there that's probably better than what we have. But the oldest, we have some 1973 stuff that's my birth year, but I'm trying to think if we have anything older than that. No. I don't think so. I think just a couple bottles from 73. Well, that's cool. What a great birthday gift. Maybe an expensive uh, yeah. birthday gift. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're hard. it's hard to find older wines. So a lot of our sellers actually from when we met five years ago. So looking back at what was released, then we really started collecting wine with like the 2014 vintage. And that's why I'm saying we're sitting on it so that we can try it in 2024 and 2034, yeah. you know, a 10-year mark and a 20-year mark and see how it's evolved. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, you mentioned that we are here in Florida. We don't have basements. So are you storing your wine in an actual cellar, like in another state? Or is this like a metaphorical 
wine cellar. It is a, a refrigerated box, basically, is what it is. And it's at a local place here in Tampa. And we go and request our wine and go pick up however many bottles, put bottles in, take bottles out. Yeah, we run into the issue where we try to put more wine in than they can hold. And so we have to take things out. And so it kind of is this constant circle. Oh my gosh. So it's almost like your wine storage unit. Yeah. yeah. Is this something that anyone can do or do you have to like know a guy? Oh no. There's all over the nation. There's wine storage, temperature controlled wine storage facilities or wine lockers, if you will. Sometimes it's just a big warehouse with cages with locks designated. Other times it's a little fancier, but yeah, um, yeah it just, you pay money almost like a annual fee to have your wine stored at temperature. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay, Florida wine doesn't get a lot of respect. What are your thoughts? I have this view that no one should tell anybody else that what they drink isn't any good. So if someone likes it, let them drink it. I mean, there are wineries in Florida that sell over a million bottles a year. There's a reason for it. People like it. And it doesn't matter what what we drink. It just matters if you like it. I mean, it's I have a hard time being friends with people that don't like wine. And so that's not true. It is true, but I don't, but it doesn't matter what kind of wine you like to drink. As long as you like to drink wine, great. That's, that's fine. So Andy likes to hang out with a degenerate crowd. So, you know, he chooses his friend based on their love of alcohol. Oh dear. Okay. This is turning into a counseling session. Emily, what are your thoughts on Florida wine? And are there any restaurants that you would recommend for a good bottle of wine, even if it wasn't, you know, local to Florida? I have never had a Florida wine before, to be honest. Yeah, but I grew up in Virginia and Virginia has its own little niche wine industry and specifically around the Charlottesville area where a lot of restaurants there support the local industry. So really every state has its own unique wine culture and you tend to see within that state those particular products being supported by the local restaurants. Yeah, for sure. Every single state in the U.S., even Hawaii and Alaska make wine of some sort. So there's, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not necessarily grow grapes, but make wine. Yeah. Right, right, make right. Wine. Uh, yeah, pineapple wine is not so bad. Sparkling orange wine, it's, not, it's uh, our wine made from oranges is pretty cool. Tastes like a mimosa. It's, uh, it's fun stuff. But yeah, everybody does that. So, you know, we're here in Tampa. Are there any restaurants uh, where you go for a, a good bottle of wine? We're I sitting here at, we're sitting here at Cruise Cellars yeah. in South Tampa, which is always great. Yeah. Great place. Uh, to me, I mean, we're very fortunate here in Tampa to have, a, if not the greatest, one of the greatest wine collections in the world, uh, at Burns Steakhouse where you can find all manner of things. So it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's, where do you go from there? But there are other spots. We Columbia, get, yeah. has an awesome Columbia has a great wine collection. Wines. Uh, Roca, uh, does a really great job, especially more on the Italian front. They, they do a lot of really good stuff. Uh, Olivia does a really great job again, more Italian and American there. Uh, I mean, those are all good spots. There's, there's so many Tampa, I think is on the verge of becoming this restaurant Mecca that we've seen blow up in Miami and we've seen blow up in other parts of Florida. Now I think Tampa is coming along, but we see a lot more uh, restaurant groups that are based here having multiple outlets versus people coming in from New York or or just opening another restaurant uh, that they would do the same thing in, in another city. So I think we're lucky in that regard. Right. Well, you guys have given us so much good information and, and advice about choosing a wine. I want to back up and find out how you both got into this. Emily, I'll start with you. How did you get into this industry and why are you passionate about it? I, right when I graduated college, got a job for the summer, what I thought would be a summer job waiting tables. And 
ended up having to take these weekly wine tests that the general manager made us take. And I realized that I loved reading about wine. It incorporates so many different subjects. There's a lot of history involved with wine, uh, obviously culture, tradition, but the biology of grape growing, the chemistry of winemaking, and again, that historical component really always captivated me. So I moved to New York City shortly thereafter and ended up deciding to stay in the restaurant business and started taking wine classes to increase my knowledge. It was just a really dynamic subject that I wanted to continually learn more about and had a thirst of knowledge for. So it really came from that place for me, coupled with, I like the taste of wine. I like to drink. I like to have fun. (laughs) There is that. There's always that part of it. How yeah. about you, Andy? So this is a second career for me. I was in uh, finance. I was a stockbroker out of college, and I always say it drove me to drink. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I got out of that industry and was looking for something else to do. And I got a part-time job at a wine shop, just stacking cases and stacking shelves. And, but it was a really great wine shop in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I just, it, it became a passion very quickly. My father collected a lot of wine uh, when I was younger. And so it was always around. It was always something that I saw. So I always had a, a passion for it. But it was only when I really started studying about it. And, and to Emily's point, there's so much to learn. It's, it's history, it's geology, geography, topography, it's religion, it's politics, it's everything that you could imagine. It's science, it's chemistry, biology, physics, it's everything that you could want. And to me, you can go down as deep a rabbit hole with wine as you want to. And I think the more that you learn about it, the more you realize how much more there is to know. And, and even though we've, we've been doing this for a while, I still feel like I only know a little pinky nail full of the information that, that is out there. You're making me want to study wine. <laughs> so if someone is hearing this and they're sitting in Florida or they're sitting in another part of the country or the world and they say, I want to be where they are, what's the first step? Taste as much as you possibly can. And as you're tasting, and, and, and it's not drinking, it's, 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 there's a difference between tasting and drinking. Tasting, you're looking to try to figure out how that wine got to be the way that it is. And pick up a book and read a book about wine or the region or the place or just something in general about wine, and it will take you to that place. To me, that's my favorite part about wine. It's like a movie. It is that you are transported from where you are to where that wine comes from. And the more of a visual you can get about where that wine comes from, the more connected you are and the more exciting it gets and the more you want to learn about it. And that is what captures it. That's that's the best thing. Definitely. I think that for the reading aspect, there are books that will tell you facts about wine, like literal wine encyclopedias, which if you really want to dive in and know the laws and regulations and the scientific facts behind winemaking, those are great resources. But in terms of the romance of our industry, a few wine writers for the New York Times have written books, Gerald Asher and Eric Asimov, a famous importer by the name of Neil Rosenthal has a great book. And those books early in my career really drove into the passionate side of this industry and made me want to explore this as a career. And even though I had never been to Italy or France, their books took me to those regions and I had an understanding for them through that. So I definitely think there's a huge component of of reading that would be a great place to start in addition to tasting wines. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I look at some of the transformative books that I've read. Uh, there was one in California called Zinfandel and then two books, and I forget the author, but there are two books based around World War One and World War Two 
in France. Uh, one is called Wine and War, and the other is called Champagne. And they both detail the history of war and battle in, in France, and obviously the one about Champagne being specifically about Champagne. I always had a passion for it, but it gets you to learn just the struggles that have gone on to get this amazingly you know, celebratory beverage that's incredible. Wow. Well, Emily and Andy, is there anything else you want to add? No, thanks for having us. This was tons of fun. And uh, this is the most we've talked about wine between the two of us in years. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm happy to facilitate that. Your passion is really contagious. So thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Master sommeliers Andy McNamara and Emily Pickrell live in Tampa. Special thanks to Crew Sellers for hosting our conversation. It was recorded at 10 a.m., so we didn't get any wine. That just means we got to go back, and so should you. If you're looking for more ways to wind down, check out my recent interview with Desiree Noisette, Florida's first black female winemaker. I also spoke a while back with journalist Judith Smeltzer, founder of Orlando Wine Blog. Find these conversations and much more on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Dalia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. This week, we had help from Chandler Balcom, Mark Hayes, and Hannah Abdel-Majid. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2022.